The size of your dreams must always exceed your current capacity to achieve them. If your dreams do not scare you, they are not big enough. That was Ellen Johnson Sirleaf at Harvard Commencement 2011. She was the first elected female head of state in Africa. And if you're going to be the first at something, it's going to be a little bit scary. Big dreams require tedious work, dedication, and most of all, vulnerability. As a SaaS operator, I'm sure you have personal, team, and company goals. If done properly, each of these aspirations can serve one another, eventually leading to prosperous outcomes for all. When everyone's aligned, this can often be when your company is ready for an exit, like going public. And while you might not be the first to go public, it's a pretty exclusive club. I did some math. Number of executives who have been on a balcony is smaller than number of uh, people who won Olympic medals. That was today's guest, Eugene Levin, president of SEMrush. As a gold medalist in capitalism, don't worry, it'll make sense when you listen to the episode, Eugene has valuable insight into what it takes to get to the top of the SAS podium. He gives us an inside look at the nitty-gritty process as well as advice you don't typically get to hear. Listen on, and hopefully by the end of this, you might feel more comfortable with those big, scary dreams. From Paddle, it's Protect the Hustle, where we explore the truth behind the strategy and tactics of B2B SaaS growth to make you an outstanding operator. On today's episode, Paddle CSO Patrick Campbell interviews Eugene Levin of SEMrush about the IPO process. We talk about what makes an IPO a good idea, maintaining control of the process, crafting your IPO story, and was the IPO actually worth it? Timestamps to each section are listed in the show notes if you want to skip around. And after you finish the episode, check out the in-depth field guide that'll help you go public just like SEMrush. Let's start off with basics. Who are you? What do you guys do? My name is Eugene Levin. I'm a president and company called SEMrush. Cool. What does SEMrush do? Uh, so SEMrush is an online visibility management platform. We help businesses to improve uh, their visibility, get more traffic, rank for keywords, you know, attract audience on social media, run ads, and so on. And it's all uh, a software product. So we don't you know, manage budgets. We just give people tools. And you know, we sort of teach them how to fish, but then they have to fish themselves. So let's talk about the IPO, man. So um, I think that what I'd love to do is kind of walk through before, during, after, right? And, and kind of the thing, because I think that not a lot of people talk about the IPO because when they are able to talk or they're not able to talk about it while it's going on, you know, because of the silent periods and stuff like that. But I guess maybe let's start at the beginning. The assumption is SEMrush is obviously growing, things are moving, like you're considering an IPO. So I guess why an IPO? And it might just be as obvious as we needed liquidity, right? But why an IPO? Um, and then why did you choose to do the IPO when, when you did? I would start with the first one, which was why why the IPO, right? I think from liquidity point of view, you know, just to run the business, we we didn't need that. Uh, and if we just needed money, we would be able to get money uh, through other routes much easier. You know, IPO is is a multi year project, and for me, raising uh, capital from let's say VC firm like late stage VCs is a is a probably one month project. So and and if it's a fundraising, it's probably just me. 
And for an IPO, it's like the whole company has to work a lot and change things. And, and, and not all those changes are uh, very good for business. Like a lot of things are designed to slow you down. Like a lot of processes, uh, they're, they're good uh, for situations when company is governed by, uh, you know, let's say executives who are not necessarily big shareholders. So shareholders need certain tools to get protection from, you know, managers. And, you know, those tools are implemented in the form of policies and processes. But for a company like SEMrush, majority shareholders are two founders, right? So you don't really need that much, you know, protection from, from management because management and majority Shareholders are the same sort of people. So they're always going to act in the best interest of shareholders anyway. But, you know, nobody takes special cases, right? SEC has certain rules. So you just follow the rules. Uh, and like I said, for, for a fast-growing company, a lot of those rules, they could be detrimental. They could slow things down uh, and very hard to implement as well. But getting back to why, right? Especially now when we established there are a lot of negatives in this whole yeah, process. Yeah, I'm wondering, you're like... It's taking too long and there's a lot of restrictions. <laughs> okay, then why why do we do it, right? Why do we do that? I, I think there are there are several several points. Uh first one, you are in again in control of your future because you know, especially when you take money from investors, sooner or later there are going to be conversations about the exit. And what I've seen being on a VC side that sometimes companies starting to get pushed into, you know, what should we do so we are attractive for a certain type of buyer? We should, from, from my point of view, as, as um, you know, an executive, that's nonsense and should never be a part of a conversation. You know, you build your own business to serve your customers and grow. You shouldn't be thinking, what should I be doing to fit into someone else's roadmap? But, you know, it's better just not to have these conversations with investors at all. So for me, and that's just one side, but I think, you know, being in control of, you know, your own future and taking care of your investors, because when you take someone's money, you sort of take an obligation to take care of them, at least to some extent, even if it's not legally binding obligation or anything, but you need to, you need to make them money. I mean, otherwise you cannot look in the mirror and say, oh, I'm a successful businessman, but my investors made nothing. It's also not, not the right approach. Combining those two, so being in control of your own destiny and providing good outcome for investors means that IPO is usually is the best route. Now, sometimes people uh, sell part of the business or the whole business to private equity. We, we thought it's, it could be interesting path, much easier, of course, but A, we, you know, we saw tons and tons of upside in our business. So why would we sell it? Or at least, you know, why would we sell the, the big portion of it? And then the second part is that we felt that multiples in, in private equity are always going to be, I mean, not always, but I would say in the long run going to be lower than what you can get if you're a public company. And I felt that, you know, private equity could be a good sort of, exit strategy for a company that is kind of lower scale. You know, it's a good business, but you don't feel confident that it will be hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. And, you know, to go public, you need hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue, or at least some cl very clear path uh, towards that. 
and not every company has it. So for them, I think P is, is a good alternative. But we felt, you know, we can we can go big. And uh, we've been working for, um, I would say, almost two years very methodically on executing this project. Oh, no, that was great. So, so to kind of summarize before you get to the second question, because the second question is why then, right? Like why that time, right? But so to summarize, obligations to investors, you have a couple of co-founders and, and the team, I would argue, some of them maybe had taken secondary earlier, but you know, like there's a lot of equity that's still built up there. And it also sounds like it was a path to get more liquidity for the business, like some primary capital for the business, but not just the only path, but all of those other obligations just kind of made sense to, to make the decision. And I guess then, so why then? Yeah, one more thing that I would add, we and we didn't use it that much, but also one of the advantages of being public companies that you can uh, buy other companies for stock because stock is liquid uh, and it's and uh, it's a very easy transaction. When you're a private company and you're trying to buy someone for stock, you need to have a lot of negotiation around, negotiations around who's valued at what multiple, which can be very challenging. When you're a public company, it's you know your your shares are as good as cash, maybe better. So I just went through that selling profitable because it was like you know private company sale to private company, and it's like well the value of the stock is X, you know blah 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 blah. It's like is it really X? Is it Y? You know that type of thing. So I get that, but why why at the moment when you did it, it was definitely from my understanding, a pretty frothy market when you guys went public. Uh, and so was that part of the reason? Or I guess you were doing it two years before planning. So I guess, why did you start to do the planning? And then ultimately, why, why when you did go public, did you go public? When we started the project, we just you know picked an arbitrary date in the future. We, we just sat together with um, you know leadership team first and then the board. We said, yeah, we want to do that. Now, if if it's a multi-year project, you need to put some kind of deadline. Otherwise, it's going to last forever. So we just picked a deadline, which was, I think, somewhere around March uh, of last year. And then we just started executing towards it. And So you were you know, planning we had, this before COVID. <laughs> before so COVID, COVID, yes. COVID happened like in the middle of your planning, basically. So that probably... Well, what is it? we don't know if it's three years now or a year now or what does it look like? So that's that's a really interesting data point. Yeah, and then when when COVID pandemic started, we looked at our metrics. We looked at you know everything. We said you know so far we're not going to change any plans. We don't know if market is going to be open or not. But if market because you know during during pandemic for a period of time market was closed, right? So there was there were no IPOs. There was panic, uh, but then it reopened very quickly. So and, and became one of the hottest markets ever. So we decided not to cancel any plans. We kept, you know, marching forward. And um, I would say we ended up in a in a market that was very open, but very hot. Probably too hot. So if we could accelerate it a little bit. Right. If, for example, we could say, okay, instead of March, we're going to do this a little bit earlier. We probably would have done this. I think the best time to sort of go public was around fall, like after pandemic, around fall. Like there have been companies that already did IPOs and did them well, but market was not overheated. And is then, the reason that that's a problem is it because it's like you get this hype train 
when you're at a really high and then you end up going down because everyone's going down, but they kind of blame you for it. Like the street blames you because you didn't keep up with that expectation. Is that why you wanted to go in a, a little bit of a weaker market? No, the, the main, I'm, I'm talking right now from pure uh, kind of project execution point of view. Oh God. Um, okay. So, so when you go in a market that is very hot, right? Like think about it this way. There is a pipeline of companies that go public. There is a finite number of analysts and finite number of investors. So if you're going out in the market with, let's say, other two companies and you are somewhere in the middle, so you're not the biggest one, not the smallest one, you get, let's say, you know, average share of attention. Plus, there are not that many companies, so investors take meetings. When you go in the market with 10 other companies and you're, let's say, size-wise company number seven, then people will prioritize you accordingly. And that, that works on all levels. You know, bankers, they will give you their number seven team, uh, so to speak. And then investors, they will send, send you not their main portfolio manager for this vertical, but they're you know, more of an associate or kind of second, second layer employee. So a lot of people who you're going to meet, they're not going to be a decision makers who, who can even make... Um, the transaction, right? They will they'll say, oh, I'll uh, tell all this things that I've learned to my boss and, and we will get back to you. So you see a lot of this kind of behavior when market is overheated. And like I said, if you're number one in this batch, like you're the biggest company, the hottest story, and you're raising not huge amount of capital ver you know, versus your valuation, like if you're tens of billions in market cap and you raise one billion, you're probably fine. If you are, you know, like I said, number seven, you raise very little. So a lot of people will not take meetings because it's too small for them. And a lot of people will send you their, their sort of second, second line. Do you have any control over this? Like, could you have said, let's wait three months or let's wait six months? Or is it, it's kind of once you cast a die, it, you're on a clock kind of a thing. Yeah, you I mean you can you can delay pretty much any point. You can you can say you want to wait a couple of weeks and you know until until you actually uh, you know have a have a meeting with your bankers and you say we're you know we're starting starting to execute roadshow starting from the day let's say X. Uh, before that, yeah, you can you can try to move things around, especially you know if, if you need to delay a couple of weeks, you probably can. Doing things faster is usually more of a challenge because you depend on, uh, let's say, review process. Like, you know, you file your S1, you need to wait until they get back with comments and you fix the comments and then reply again. So there are several iterations. So doing faster is usually not very feasible because it depends on specific milestones. But doing slower is pretty much always an option. The challenge is you don't know when Windows is closing. So we did an IPO, right? in March last year. And I wouldn't say that window closed, you know, right after that, but but market didn't, you know, started to cool off. Come down. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Relatively fast. So we could, we could, you know, two weeks wouldn't change anything, but if we said, let's wait half a year, it could have been a problem. We could, but then we you're could risking have it, right? window. Yeah. You're risking it being a year then because of the, the markets were so unpredictable during the past couple of years. So you said it was a two year process. Like if, if you were trying to teach me, like I was like, hey, Eugene, we're going to go public. 
uh, or we, we know we're going to go public. Like I got to kick off my two year process. Like teach me that process. Like, where does it start? What are the things you have to do? Who are the people you have to get involved? All that kind of fun stuff. Yeah. So I think there are, there are several parts here. So there are, you know, like business requirements. Uh, there are certain, you know, benchmarks that need, you need to get in a range and, and it's better to start doing them upfront. Uh, I think there are a lot of things around strategy and positioning that needs to be done upfront because if you have some sort of vision for the future of the business, but you are not there, you probably not going to be very successful explaining investors why they should understand this this bigger story compared to where you are today. You know, if if there are some parts in the pitch, like you know, in the future this is going to look like that, it's better have some evidence that this is happening. So, for example, for us, you know, when we went public, platform vision was there. But we didn't have a lot of traction yet. We were just expecting to launch this after IPO. So we didn't try to oversell it or anything. But there have been a lot of uh, parts around our cross-sell thesis. We already had several extra products that we upsell to existing user base, and we have really good traction with that. So we've been talking about that. And when Platform was, was there, when we launched our App Center, we just started Talking like, remember, uh, we were doing this add-ons and they were pretty successful. So now we have more add-ons. And by the way, uh, those add-ons can be built by other companies as well. But it's a continuation of a familiar story. And I think, you know, working on your story is uh, very important. And you can do this, you know, sooner or later. But if you do this sooner, you can make adjustments to your roadmaps to make sure that by the time you start talking to investors, story makes sense and there is evidence that this is happening. So that's probably, you know, one side. Uh, the second side is purely technical. For example, you need to be audited company. You need to have certain systems in place, uh, like accounting systems. Uh, you need to be eventually uh, SOX compliant. So, so you need... By the time you go public, you at least need to be sure that you can finish this implementation in time. You don't necessarily have to be fully compliant at the date of the IPO, but you need to get there pretty soon. And the you know SOX compliance depends on the company, but you know this this kind of thing can take years to implement. And of course, the third side is the composition of the team. As a public company, you just need to have certain roles, like you know composition of finance team changes dramatically. You need control over the public markets experience. You need FBNA, not just one person, probably the whole FBNA team. Um, and I think you know the level the level of accuracy that is tolerable for a private company is not tolerable uh, for public company. You need you need to be very very close uh, to the guidance. So so your FBNA needs to be top notch. Uh, so investing in systems, investing in in teams. You know you need general counsel. Uh, this is this is very expensive role to have, uh, and you cannot be public company and, and sort of not have anyone you know who's who's a senior uh, you know senior very very qualified lawyer you know who's who's helping the company. So all all those things are very important and they take a lot of time. Like hiring right person can take half a year easily. So that's why it's better to start uh, kind of in advance. 
I think some companies might be able to do this faster. I've heard stories when people uh, you know, try to accelerate the timeline and get things done uh, maybe in a year or, or 18 months. But from what I've seen, usually those are companies that they sort of knew long time ago that IPO is an option they should be exploring. And they've been building a lot of systems and already had a lot of executives with public company experience. And then they just needed to execute the project. Like they needed to hire bankers, uh, write, you know, write S1, but they had a lot of work done upfront. So when we started our project, we didn't know like before that day that, you know, there is a certainty that we want to do an IPO. So we were not doing a lot of preparations like two years in advance. And we started only like two years before IPO roughly. Yeah. So it sounds like you need your fundamental numbers in place, like growth just in general. And I think one thing that you, you touched on really briefly that I think a lot of people don't always realize is there's a certain rubric that a mid-stage investor looks for that is very different than a public uh, investor or a public you know, roadshow investor looks for. And I think in the world of SaaS, it's platforming, it's number of SKUs, how's your cross-sell going? Because they're kind of comparing you to a different rubric. And that rubric is getting closer to what venture looks at, but it's still not there, right? Like cash flows, people care a little bit more about um, all those types of things. And so your numbers, you have to be in the right direction in terms of growth, cross-sell, et cetera, right? Then there's the story, which I want to talk about in a second. And then there's kind of like your team and checkboxes, it sounds like. You know, you need the right audited financials, the right accuracy, the right FP&A, the right general counsel, et cetera, SOC 2, ISO, if you're a certain type of company. My question on the story is, is who are you getting help from? Is it all internal that you're coming up with it? Is it you're crafting the story that you think the street's going to like and it connects to where you're already going? Like, how does that work? Is it you go to the bankers and the bankers tell you like, uh, you really need a story that goes in this direction. It's not big enough what you guys are talking about. Like, how does that work? Because it's it's a little more amorphous. I get growth and I get checkboxes. The story is a little more amorphous for me. I, I think there are there are several ways to get to the story. And I think there are companies like uh, Tesla, where, you know, one guy already did all the work and, and there is a story and nobody else have to do anything on top of that. And But I think for most of companies, no matter how visionary the founder is, they're going to be a bigger team involved in uh, shaping the story. So in our case, uh, for example, we, of course, worked internally, but we also had advisors who do just that. So, so they, they work with pre-IPO companies and um, help them with story, help them with banker relationships, and, and help to sort of uh, polish the pitch. I don't know if I can name people we worked with, so I, I probably, but I would be happy to give them more business and promote them, by the way. Uh, phenomenal, phenomenal people. And they t- taught us a lot, but also as we were working on a story with them, um, they would ask very tough questions, like te- you know, questions that no business owner want to hear or answer. Uh, and I think because they've been tough with us and they've been asking all those complex questions, we got to the point where, you know, it was very, very hard to poke a hole in the story or find something in the story where, where we didn't have any proof that it can work. I think a lot of companies, when I read their S1, I'm like, this is this is true. 
this is wishful thinking. So they're they're presenting it like it's real, but it's not. They're not doing that. And and I see this in in many stories of many companies. And when I talk to investors, a lot of them see that as well, and and they sort of see through this. So we 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 did a lot of work where you know we we would make sure that there is no in the story. Oh, pardon for my language. Uh, and they would ask a lot of very uncomfortable questions to me because you know for you know founder for executive to hear some bad bad things or or you know. You know, questions like why why your kid is so so skinny, you know, or or not so strong. You're like, come on, man, it's you know, it's why are we talking about that? Yeah, question. yeah, 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 yeah. But for business, everyone is like, why this metric is this way? Why that metric? Does it mean this? Does it mean that? How do you explain? Uh, so we've spent a lot of time, you know, trying to poke holes in the story. And I think, you know, at some point we got it to the point where we ran out of ideas. We would ask all the tough questions. We would have good answers for all the tough questions. Uh, and that point, we started approaching uh, bankers, and bankers give you the second iteration. So they help you to polish a lot of things. Less from substance point of view, they're not, they're usually not going to you know ask those you know type of questions that you don't like to hear. Uh, some of them may, but but usually you know less, bankers less. But they're going to tell you how to shape this story. In a way that investors could not understand that, because a lot of people, you know, they they work in the, in in a specific business environment and they know their space really well, and they think everyone knows their space well. And investors, especially public market investors, they're not like this; they're not specialized. Like let's say the right investors say, "I invest mostly in SaaS." Well, that's great. There is a huge difference between what we are doing or what Salesforce is doing or what Slack is doing. And, you know, figuring out how to speak the same language, but don't sound like you, you're, you're oversimplifying things is a very delicate balance. And I think bankers help really well with that because they know that they have a feeling where investors are going to get that and what parts need to be clarified. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you think... Um the loudest thunder clap I have heard in a long time just happened outside my window here. So sorry if you heard that, but I, I've heard that. I was surprised. Yeah. 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 I was like, what is happening? It sounds like a bomb went off. Unfortunately, that's interesting because I think we only hear about the ridiculous S ones, right? Unless you're like a nerd and look at the S ones, right? Like you hear about the, the, we work one, right? Where it's, you know, the, it just was all story and no substance. Right. And it's, it's interesting to hear that you went out of your way to make sure that if the story was told, substance was there to back it up, or at least there was a connection to substance. There's a world where that actually hurt you a little bit, right? Because it didn't allow some doubt or not some doubt, but some wishful thinking on the side of an investor to say, well, if they just figure this out, it could be 10x or something. Or is that not what these types of investors really think? Because that's like a story maybe for a seed investor or a series A investor versus a this company's about to IPO and the balance sheet actually matters investor. Is that is that right? I, I think there are very there are a lot of different types of investors, right? Pub, I, I don't want to generalize that all public market investors are the same because they're they're different in many, many different ways. Um, I would actually say that, for example, I would say traditional US-based VC investor for let's say um growth rounds or seed rounds, uh, they will have a lot in common, more in common than, for example, average 
uh, public market investor going to have in common. Uh, and I mean, institutional investors, of course. And I think some of them definitely interested in those, you know, stories that are not there yet, but have a potential. I like I keep talking about Tesla because for me, that's that's an example. Like you're you're looking at this thing and you're saying why? I mean, I don't know if it's now the case, but at some point it was valued above like top three other automakers combined or something. And they were making just but a lot less. Money. Other people would say, well, there is a phenomenal founder. There is a phenomenal product. Uh, it's definitely a space that's going to achieve higher adoption. It's definitely a space that is going to achieve a lot of free media. And let's try to not to think how many units they delivered last year. Let's try to think about what, what happens with this business in the world where 50% of passenger vehicles are electric vehicles. And then they would say, okay, so what happens in the world where 50% of passenger vehicles are automated, oh, sorry, are electric and use autonomous driving? What happens in the world where 50% of vehicles are electric, there is autonomous driving, and uh, you can energize this through solar roofs? And then they look at Tesla through that prism and, and they say, well, in this imaginary world in the future, if things go right, this can be not just you know personal vehicle company, can be transportation company, energy company, all in one sort of bundle. How valuable would that be? And they come up with some numbers that, that justify the valuation. So I think it really depends. Uh, but most of investors, they're not like that. So from my experience. So, so most of public market investors, they're usually very focused on numbers. And even story is important for them only as a proxy towards numbers. For example, uh, story is very important to understand if TAM that you see in S1 is real or not real. Because like, like you said, uh, with, with, for example, companies like WeWork, there are a lot of interesting things in S1, but they're probably not real, not feasible. And through the way you ask questions, through the way you understand the story, you make your conclusion. Like, is it a real thing or, or it's, like I said, well, like you said, wishful thinking. But I think most of investors, they're, they're more, you know, very diligent. They think about long-term outcome. So they, they think about, like, is it a hot market? So, for example, with Samraj, they would be asking question, you know, is there going to be an internet in, in 20 years? You know, do, do we think that people will search for stuff in 20 years? Do we think that attention will be harder or easier to get? And if they answer, well, they're probably going to be internet, uh, people probably going to search for stuff or discover stuff online, and uh, attention probably going to be harder to get because more content and less people. I mean, not necessarily less people, but less, um, less growth in number of uh, people, at least in affluent countries. And in some countries, maybe no growth at all, right? Uh, so if they answer all this, they're like, okay, I'm good with my macro thesis, why it's a good long-term thing. Now let's look at numbers and, and try to understand what drives the valuation and unit economics of this. I mean, they, they don't necessarily get all the unit economics numbers, but they try to reverse engineer that from you know filings that you provide or extra metrics that you provide. And they're very diligent and do a lot of a lot of work. I think our best investors, they call customers. They monitor all your feature updates. They track everything everything that happens in the space. 
Sometimes, sometimes they would send an email and ask, hey, have you seen this? And they're like, yeah, I just finished reading. Yes, I've seen that, but you were very close. <laughs> So it's interesting. It's, it's, it's very different. And, and I guess the last couple of questions is, okay, so you went public. Was, was it fun like to actually ring the bell or to, to hang out? Was it, was that a fun experience or was it, you know, cause there's a lot of people who like, that's what they dream about. Like that moment, even though it's two years and all this other stuff, but was that a fun day or was it just hectic and frustrating? For me personally, uh, it was very rewarding experience because you know, it's, it's a long road show. Even though we did online roadshows through Zoom, it was still very exhausting. If it was like, you know, old school roadshow, I don't know how we would do that. Um, because I was, end of the day, I, w- I was dead. I couldn't do anything. I had to drive home. I was concerned that I'm, you know, I might be not in a condition to drive. So so it's, it's physically exhausting. Like all those meetings, you, you have to be at 100% of your like mental capacity. Uh, you have to be perfect with all the answers. And it, it's it's more than a week of this sort of work. And in the middle, you think you can take a rest, but but no. Once you're done with investors, you go back and talk to bankers to get a recap to understand the dynamics of the book. Like you know, do we are we getting enough orders? No, and so on. They brief you for the next day. They give you feedback about your answers today. So it, it is very very exhausting process. And then at the end of this process, there is very stressful you know part when you build a book. And, and then, you know, you finished building the book and the same night we went uh, to New York from Boston. So it's a four hour uh, drive. We arrived sometime at midnight and then in the morning you have to be, uh, you know, all dressed up in New York Stock Soon Exchange tie, yeah, to ring the yeah. bell. Um, we didn't do ties. So that was a positive thing. We did hoodies and stuff. But once I got to the New York Stock Exchange... I, I felt very, very relieved, very different. And I was like, yeah, that was totally worth it. Because you walk there and you're like, how many people ever have done this? Not a lot of people have done this, right? I, I, I did some math. Actually, number of executives who have been on a balcony for Rings of the Bell ceremony is smaller than number of uh, people who won Olympic medals. Uh, all kinds of medals, b- both winter and summer Olympics, but still. It's a more exclusive club, so to speak. And and just the feeling that you have, you know, in your stock exchange was like, you know, I'm a big fan of capitalism. And this is like a church of capitalism. If if you, you, you got know, a gold medal thing. in capitalism, that's what you did. That's great. So, someone. Yeah. So they, yeah, they even give you a medal. So for me, it was very rewarding. Oh, that's great. Experience. You got one. <laughs> that's great. That's awesome. Being a public company, though, you hear a lot of people gripe about it. Because obviously you have different expectations. You literally have a stock ticker every single day, you know, and hopefully you're not looking at that every single day, but you different reporting requirements. Is it as bad as people say, or is it is just as bad or it's not bad at all? Like, how do you look at it? I think for many people, people in accounting, for example, it's, it's very bad, right? They're <laughs> their life becomes is run by uh, legis- you know more challenging in many yeah. many ways, right? You have deadlines, you, you know, you, you have you know different tolerance for errors, and especially when when it, you know you're close to filing, everyone gets stressed out. Like a lot of people, you know, don't sleep. Like we're lucky, we have great team, but I know some companies you know struggle with that. So for some people, it's it's definitely very uh, very challenging. 
even you know let's say people in departments that that shouldn't be that related like pr so now to do a press release you have to review everything like you know every number that you give you know you need to scan for any kind of forward looking statements when you uh communicate your future develop product development plans uh you had, you need to make sure you're not really committing to anything and if you're you are committing then it's going to be done in time there is a legal review uh so their work changed from you know being able to write press release in the morning and publish it in the evening to you know having several different stakeholders that need to sign off before they can publish something and that's something that is pretty far from like you know Securities Exchange Commission and, and, and legal and finance. But ideally, I think if you have a great team that for leadership, it's not that different. So there are there are certain changes in your, how, you, how you plan, how you operate. There are certain uh, additional sections during the board meeting. You need to add certain board members. Uh, but otherwise, for me, it was not that much different. Now, I have meetings with different types of investors. Before that, I would talk to private market investors. Now I talk to public market investors. Somewhat different, not that much different. Definitely, I wouldn't say more stressful or anything. And for our product teams, I think there are, you know, we definitely implemented several new workflows around security checks and um, open source scans and so on that, that are required. But Beyond that, I don't think their life changed materially, except the fact that those who have stock options now can fill reach. So that's great. There's a, it sounds like it's um, it's like operationally, it, it you know, all benefits have some trade offs, right? And I think that the trade off is you have to be much more buttoned up um, than than you know you might even if you were a well functioning private company. So. I know we're coming up on time here, so I got to get you out of here. But uh, this is amazing. I, I learned so much just around, you know, because there's there's always this fantasy about what that's like, right? And you see some stuff in the movies, but you always see a little sliver. So it was really helpful to kind of go through, you know, the beginning, like why, when, and then obviously all the fun stuff um, and those pieces. And then ultimately hear a little bit that it's, it's, you know, it is bad in certain places. I won't say bad, but it is taxing in certain places. And then in others, it's, you know, life doesn't change that much. So yeah, any final thoughts? And of course, where can people find you or anything you want to plug? Yeah, I mean, people can always reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, I don't use other social networks that much. Uh, but on LinkedIn, I'm, I'm pretty um, open and usually reply. But otherwise, you know, if you want to learn more about how to do marketing online, Samrush has a lot of educational content in our academy and our blog. Um, and I think we're one of the best places to start learning more about marketing. We have a freemium version of the product. We have free trials. So it doesn't take you money to start figuring out if that's something for you, something you need right now or not. Plus, you know, of course, one thing that we didn't touch, but, you know, we got initially connected, right, through ProfitWell, obviously. And I think a lot of people, they underestimate importance of pricing and package. And for me, I, I thought, you know, where I could squeeze it into the, the narrative, but the conversation didn't lead there. But for, for me, the reason we, we value this relationship and I'm, you know, always responsive when, you know, team reaches out is because pricing packaging is super important. A lot of businesses undervalue that and they, they think, okay, I'll just make the right product or I just need more traffic. And it all doesn't work if you don't have right packaging, right pricing that sort of fits buyer persona. 
And we've learned it. I wouldn't say we learned it hard way, but we've learned this through so through a lot of experiments and mistakes and fixes of these mistakes. Like I said, one of the final thoughts is that for some reason, a lot of entrepreneurs undervalue that part of their business and, and don't spend enough time there. I think it's the fear. There's always something more tangible, more concrete, not easy, but easier. And it's you get all these smart people and it's it just there's always a, a fear, uncomfortableness with it, uh, which is tough. But uh, thanks for the plug. I owe you lunch for that one. Uh, so I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, but I'll be in Boston, actually. You, uh, you guys made us a lot of money. So, so that <laughs> here we go. That's clip it. That's going to be the intro right there. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's awesome. Yeah. I think it's, it's funny how, uh, yeah. And how important pricing and packaging is. And hopefully you realize like it's a lot of trial and error, but also like, it's not hard. It's like everything else. It's like product development, customer development, sales development. It's like, you just got to follow a process and follow the data and stuff. So Eugene, my friend, good hanging out. Um, I'll hit you up. I'll be in Boston in a couple of weeks for business of software. And uh, yeah, let's hang. Yeah, absolutely. When, you, when you're in town, just, just give me a call. Awesome, brother. We'll see you, man. Thank you. See you. Thank you. A huge shout out to Eugene Levin for doing the podcast. Now you have an inside look at what it takes to go public. Today, we talked about what makes an IPO a good idea, maintaining control of the process, crafting your IPO story, and was the IPO actually worth it? If you want to support Paddle and the show, we'd really appreciate it if you left a five-star review of this podcast or the equivalent rating wherever you listen or watch. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure you subscribe to and tell your friends about Protect the Hustle, a podcast from Paddle.